your talk show for all things automotive. From the latest news to the greatest views and the biggest names in rolling iron. Your host is Brett Hatfield, freelance auto journalist, senior auction analyst for Sports Car Market Magazine and American Car Collector Magazine, writer and editor of ReadTheDriven.com and owner of his own small but growing fleet of cool cars. Get behind the wheel of an hour of car talk starting right now. Thanks so much for spending time with Driven Radio. We know your time is valuable, so we work hard to bring you the best in automotive content and interviews. You can find us online at readthedriven.com, follow us on Facebook at forward slash Driven Radio Show, on Twitter at Driven Radio Show, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and everywhere fine podcasts are heard. I'm your host, Brett Hatfield, here with Shelby Expert Extraordinaire and owner of Vernon Estes Classics, Vern Estes. Here I am. Yeah, here we are. And kind of amazing that we are here after the week that we've had. Yeah, it's been a real adventure. Yeah, well, who knew that we could do two different things? You know, we can we can do construction, we can do podcasts. That's about it. Yeah. Coming up on this week's show, we'll be talking about relocating to our new studio, the big news about the 8th generation Corvette's coming debut, hot new news about the uh, 2020 EcoBoost Mustang, and our special guest this week is Keith Martin, publisher of Sports Car Market and American Car Collector Magazines, and my sometimes boss. So uh, let's see who fed it and who ate it this week. So, we're in a new studio. Yes, we are. we're, We're in studio again but we're working on building a new studio and uh when we get everything solidified and we're ordering stuff and we're putting things up we'll tell everybody where it is and yeah hopefully they won't stalk us uh we're glad to be back in studio good to be back behind the microphone and for uh, sure yeah i'd say great to talk to you again but i left you long enough to go grab a shower and then come back we've here been, we've had the pleasure of spending all week together oh man nice but you got a new warehouse. Got a new warehouse. You got a new place to stack up cool Shelby's. Cleaning other, it up. Other, nice little used car dealership. Other fun stuff. Yeah. Uh, we found out that if we're going to build something, we need to call help. Yeah, that's which true. Is, which is kind of embarrassing for a guy who grew up with a construction background. We also found out that uh, Butler buildings are better put together with stud guns than screws. <laughs> it's far more effective. Yeah, less well, frustrating. Any, anything that you can put a two, 22 shot behind and then just shoot the screw through the wall and we only got the cops called on us twice yeah well they're friendly that way i i i didn't know that the cops had never seen a stud gun they seem to like it uh wouldn't be driven radio without mid-engine corvette news last week chevy finally got around to giving us a debut date for the 2020 corvette c8 the mid-engine corvette uh they're going to debut the thing july 18th this summer uh, of 2019 They pushed out a notification via their Chevrolet fan site, and GM chairman and CEO Mary Barra, together with Corvette engineering uh, head honcho, Taj, now help me, is it Hoekter? I think it's Hoekter. I have no idea. Uh, Showed up at a chariot event in New York City with a prototype after having driven through town in the car. Uh, The next generation Corvette will be the first to feature a mid-engine design, a layout that engineers once considered but haven't pursued thoroughly till now. And though no new information about the car has been released, we're expecting V8 power to develop, uh, well, throughout the Corvette lineup, including a potential hybrid powertrain that could develop more than a thousand horsepower and drive all four wheels. 
We expect the base engine to be a version of the 6.2 liter V8 plucked from the C7 that should be tuned to around 500 horsepower. There's also been talk of a 5.5 liter flat plane crank V8 that could come later and deliver more than 600 horse. Now, taking a nice play out of Ford's playbook, huh? Well, even though they stole that from Ferrari. Well, Shelby stole it from Ferrari, and then we're Chevy is stealing it from Ford. And that's how I, it usually goes. I don't think there's any yeah. such thing as an original. We had idea Mustangs, anymore. and then three years later, we had Camaros, and. You know, it's just yeah, this well, is how things generally progress. We so had it's Corvettes, and then a couple years later, we had Thunderbirds. So let's not. That's true. You want is true. You want to yeah. go tit for tat here? Uh, Range topping hybrid could be a world beater and a serious threat for million dollar supercars. Base models are likely to cost less than a hundred thousand dollars, perhaps considerably less. Uh, nothing new on the top end versions, and we'll have a link to the article on readthedriven.com. Now, just to make sure I've got this correct, does it look like, is it starting to look more and more like the Corvette is going to exclusively a mid-engine, or are they going to offer a front-engine version? You know, everything Haven't that seen I've any read, prototypes of front-engine cars, it's right? It's been all over. There's been talk that they'll continue doing the seventh generation with a front-engine rear drive, doing the Stingray Z06 and ZR1 platforms. But they're also talking about doing a three-model platform for the rear engine. So I don't know if they're going to continue doing it. There's also been talk of spinning off Corvette as a separate brand. Mm -hmm. There's been talk about a possible Corvette SUV. Ugh, God, God, I hope, I hope not. not. I pray Even as not. somebody who's not one of the Corvette faithful, I hope that that just after seeing the Ferrari SUV and everybody else going, oh. Porsche is really the only one that has the right to do that because they do it well. Lamborghini. Oh, it's just sort of a bar awful. fest. Have you seen a Urus up close? Oh, I don't want to. They're I've terrible. seen it from far away, and it was bad enough. <laughs> I can't unsee it. I can't unremember it. Well, that's no no joke. So, there's also Mustang news this week. No. Oh. What do you got? There you go. Well, Ford announced that they're doing a, a little bit of an upfit package of the 2.3 liter Ford EcoBoost drivetrain. It's it's kind of the first package that uh, Ford Performance has been involved with with the uh, the EcoBoost Mustang. And you know, Brett, these EcoBoost Mustangs, even though they're sort of considered the entry level uh, package for the Mustang, they got a lot of punch to them. Well, they're uh, talking about 330 horse. 330 in the horsepower Mustang GT brakes, a lot of other kind of chassis refinements. I mean, well, it's it's an interesting package for and sure. And they, they said possibly some Mustang GT aerodynamics and yep. stuff like that. You know, 330 horse is more than the five liters were putting out not that long mm-hmm. ago. Yeah. Uh, just what, 2013, those were still around 300, and that was on the big V8. Yeah, and, and this whole thing kind of started as a passion project. Uh, it kind of started as a Ford-focused uh, RS engine swap, which is a pretty cool car. So, I mean, I had a – just two or three years ago, I had a, a rental EcoBoost convertible, your typical rental car. And even that in sport mode was not the uh, – you know, not the quickest thing in the world, but it was definitely not slow. No. So, And that's the economy version that you're getting at, at rental car outlets. Well, so and, this should be an interesting car. And they're saying 330 horse and 350 pound-feet of torque. That's not a slouch. Yeah, the EcoBoost drivetrains get a lot of uh, get a lot of slack uh, simply because you got a lot of guys who only want V8s. And I can understand liking V8s, obviously. But uh, I tell you what, I have an EcoBoost 3.5 truck from 2015, and that thing moves. Well, it'll be interesting to see where they come out as far as pricing is on these things. Uh, and you're right. That's going to be flooding mm-hmm. rental cars. I mean, everything. It's it's kind of neat what you're able to get at a rental place now. Walk up and you can get. Well, good example. When I was in Amelia Island, uh, walked into a rental car place and I told them, 
hey, uh, I need a, a mid-size sedan, which mid-size sedan anymore is something that feels claustrophobic to be in. And I said, oh, really? Dodge Ram 1500 four-wheel drive crew cab right over there. Same money. <laughs> okay. Yep. <laughs> okay. Twist my arm. So uh, the link to that article, as well as the article about the Corvette, will also be found on readthedriven.com. Coming up, we've got Keith Martin. Uh, Keith had a very mild stroke right around the first of the year. And he's on the mend. He's back at it. He's uh, You just can't hold the guy still. But uh, he's going to be with us to give us his unique insight on the collector car world, tell us what we can expect for the hobby and culture, and uh, what's going on in his world right now, what he's seen. So we've got all that and more coming up on Driven Radio. Our special guest this week is Keith Martin, and uh, Keith's a really interesting guy. He didn't come from a traditional automotive background. He studied intellectual history at Reed College in Portland, Oregon. He was a dance major at Juilliard, studied with Martha Graham and Charles Weedman. Uh, he founded the Ballet Oregon, the first professional ballet company in Oregon. He's been involved with the collector car hobby for more than 30 years. As a writer, publisher, television commentator, and enthusiast, he rarely sits still. And uh, Keith spends his time meeting collectors, getting involved in their activities throughout the world. He is the founder and publisher of Sports Car Market and American Car Collector magazines. He's written for the New York Times, Automobile, Auto Week, Road and Track, and other publications. And he's a frequent Concours MC, as well as the host of What's My Car Worth on the former Velocity Channel. Keith had a mild stroke in January, but true to form, he barely let it slow him down. He's on the mend, working hard, and keeping the collector car world informed. Most importantly, Keith took a chance on me. He continues to let me do my dream job writing for his magazines. Keith, welcome to Driven Radio. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for the kind words. But I have to say, Brett, that uh, you're one of the gambles that I took that's really paid off well. You're a great asset to sports car market, and I love to see what you ride every month. Oh, my God. I'm glad I own a convertible. I'm never going to get my head in a regular car to go home. <laughs> that's fantastic. Uh, so let's get to the important stuff first. We're very happy to have you on the show. I've been wanting to have you on for a long time now. Uh, but most importantly, how are you feeling? Uh, what's different for you now? Well, I'm feeling pretty good. You know, my, my stroke, after I had the stroke, I was uh, uh, partly paralyzed. I mean, the stroke came out of nowhere. I, I was in good health. I ran three miles the day before. My blood, blood pressure was low. Uh, it just knocked me out. I was lucky to live. Two-thirds of the people that had this kind of stroke, a hemorrhagic stroke, they die. Uh, and then I've been in intensive rehab. I've got uh, I've got my left arm is back completely. My left leg, my clutch leg, is uh, doing pretty well. Right now, I'm wrestling with some 
hip and back issues that just kind of come, you know, when you're going through rehab, you put a lot of different stresses on your body and different things pop up, but they're all like little bumps in the road that, that I'm going to be able to get over. Well, you're a healthy guy and you're in pretty good shape. Um, can you walk us through what happened? Well, I, I, all I can say is that I was taking a shower and I started feeling shaky. And the next thing I knew, I was laying on my stomach, pushing myself down the hallway of my condo with my feet because I couldn't walk anymore. And I, I managed to get the door open to the hallway and I started yelling for help. EMTs came about 15 minutes later and rushed me to the hospital and there I was. Good grief. That's that, that, that you almost never hear of somebody making it to the hospital, especially when you're home alone. Yeah, I'm, I have a lot to be thankful for. And my the stroke affected my left side, but it didn't affect my cognitive uh, abilities. In other words, the thinking and speaking and things like that. So I, I, have, a, you know, I have a lot to be thankful for, Brett. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're starting to get your clutch leg back a, a little yeah. bit. Um, we all know you're a fiend for classic alphas, and you've also got a 308 GT4 that I'm sure you want to spend some time behind the wheel of. I do. I, I love my cars, and I've had sports cars since the day I turned 16, and I'm, I'm just, I'm just eager to get back. I can't be in too much of a hurry. You can't rush these things, but I'm. Each day I get a little better. For those who don't know you or know your story, it's really interesting. How do you go from being uh, uh, studying dance at Juilliard to being a magazine publisher? Well, that's a question I've asked myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I, I was always a car guy. Uh, I fell in love with dance when I was at Reed College. I liked it so much that I dropped out of college and I went back east and, and danced at Juilliard. Uh, and, and I put 10, 15 years into the ballet world. And then I was kind of done. I, I really, um, uh, cars were my passion and they just pulled me. I also, I also like to write. And I was, uh, I retired from ballet and I, uh, Ron Tonkin asked me to run his Ferrari store in Portland, selling Ferraris, Maseratis, Alfa Romeos, and Lotus. So I did that. And, and, and that time period, there were a couple of market letters, the Ferrari market letter, the uh, Maserati market letter, Ford market letter. And I'd read them, and, and I, was, I was kind of intrigued, and, th and there wasn't an alpha market letter. And I thought, well, I better do one before somebody else does, because if somebody else does one and it's not good, I'll be irritated with myself. <laughs> you know? So I put an ad in Hemming saying, subscribe to the Alpha Romeo market letter. And I got like 200 people responded, and I thought, "Damn! Wow! I guess I have to I have to do something now." You know, um, the Ferrari market letter was always printed on yellow paper, so I printed the Alpha market letter on blue paper just just because. Uh, and it, it just kind of evolved. I've never taken any classes in publishing. Um, it's it's been kind of seat of the pants. For a while, I, I bought printing presses to print my own magazine because I thought that was a smarter way to do things. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's grown from, you know, a few hundred subscribers to over 20,000. We have 15 people on the staff in the office. We're in our 31st year, and each issue is 175 to 200 issues. So it's, uh, it, it never occurred to me 31 years ago when we put that ad in Hemmings that I'd be doing this, you know, 30 years from then. 
And at least from what I've found working for you, which uh, again, you, you, you gave me my dream job. I, I always, I always wanted to be an auto journalist when I was a kid, but I didn't have the first idea how to do it and never really pursued it. And I wound up being one because you sent, uh, I think it was Tony Piff sent an email to the subscribers saying, have you ever wanted to be an auction analyst? And, uh-huh. and that's, I said yes, and they they Tony gave me about a fifteen minute explanation, then sent me to Dallas. <laughs> but, well, you know, you say you didn't know how to be an automotive journalist. What we look for is people who are passionate, because if people are passionate about what they're doing and they can write, we can edit and and massage what they write, but the passion will still come through. If they're not passionate, it's going to be boring, no matter how perfect it is yes but what i was uh, began to say and got sidetracked is your your publication sports car market and american car collector are the bible yeah the absolute bible for the collector car world and anytime somebody sees that that press pass that media pass hanging around your neck that says sports car market on it they think you know everything just because i work for you and well, don't it, disappoint them, Brett. Don't disappoint them. Oh no, no, <laughs> no, no! They come up and say, "Hey, is this a good buy?" Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I got my price guy with me somewhere. You say is, you'll say, "Let me check into that for you." That's that's exactly what it is, and uh, right. because of that, I don't ever go to an auction without having a price guide in my back pocket. I know. Uh, when they ask, "Is this a great buy?" Well, hey, let me check. I'll tell you in just a sec. <laughs> We're speaking with. You, know, you just ask people that. You ask them, "Do you like the car?" Because if, if you really like the car, you almost can't go wrong because you're buying from your heart. True, true. The incident that stood out to me was the guy I was at uh, uh, Russo of Scottsdale, and there was a gentleman looking at a black Ferrari three hundred and twenty-eight, and he was six foot five, and he uh-huh. said, "Do you think this is a good deal?" And I'm looking at him, going you know, you're only going to be able to drive that with the top off and you're going to have a yeah. lot of June bugs on your forehead. Yeah. And I certainly didn't say that to him, but I'm, well, if you're six, five and you want to drive that Ferrari, you can. We're speaking with Keith Martin of sports car market and American car collector, Keith. So you started printing your own magazine and clearly it's grown to be, I'm guessing well beyond your your wildest imaginations when you started. What was the single biggest surprise you had when you started publishing? Well, I I had the Alpha Market Letter, and then I added another little publication, black and white, called the English Car Market Letter. And so I was doing this all myself, the writing, the typesetting, the layout. uh, And I was real frustrated. And I finally gave up, and I said, you know, I'm going to add German cars to this, and I'm just going to call it sports car market. And when we started covering all sports cars, uh, suddenly advertisers started coming in, and we started getting uh, a larger group of subscribers. So it, it's, um, it was a, a move done of real desperation and frustration, but it turned out to be good for us because when you're covering the whole world of sports cars, you have a lot more people to appeal to, and you have advertisers who are uh, more interested in what you have to offer. 
And along with that, eventually you came you came out with a magazine that was almost exclusively Corvettes. And how did- yeah, that was that was called Corvette Market. We um, we did that, and uh, that grew to a, be a pretty good pretty good size. But then we realized once again that we should really just make it about all American cars. Just like Alpha Market Letter became Sports Car Market, Corvette Market became American Car Collector. You know, you, there are only so many things you can say about. Corvettes. I mean, each issue we would have a profile of a C1, C2, C3, C4, and after you've written 20 articles on a on a C3, you, you've you've said quite a bit. Well, and I can appreciate that. I was one of the subscribers. Uh, we'll be right back with more from Keith Martin here on Driven Radio. back with more driven radio the sweetest smelling car podcast anywhere we're speaking with keith martin founder and publisher of sports car market and american car collector magazines and when we were left keith was telling us a little bit about some of the uh, uh, surprises he had with starting his own magazine and uh, things that he ran into uh keith we're glad you're here you're on the mend are you going to make it to monterey this year I'm sure hoping to. You know, I'm not going to say yes because I don't want to put any stress on myself. Sure. When you're in stroke recovery, the key is to let your body take its own path. Uh, my, my team will be there. They did a great job in Scottsdale with the seminar. Donald Osborne ran it. And my executive editor, Chester Allen, was there, and Jim Pickering, the managing editor. Um, so I'd like to be there, and if, if it's the right thing to do, I'll be there. I haven't missed a Monterey in 31 years. But but if my body's not ready, I won't, because healing is the most important thing right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I want to shift gears a little bit uh, and discuss, yeah. what do you see happening in the collector car market right now? We had a rather meteoric rise into the mid-2010s uh, uh, with car prices, and things seem to have cooled off a little bit. What do you see happening right now? Well, the, the biggest shift that I see is the, the millennials are coming into the market, and they're buying cars. We call them next-gen, 1986 to 2005, BMW M3s, uh, you know, AMG, Mercedes. The, the market for bug-eye sprites and TR3s and TR4s has really cooled off quite a bit, and you don't see a lot of young people buying those cars. Uh, they, they'd rather have a, a Miata, an M-Spec or something. So that's, that's the, when you go to an auction now, you see so many late model cars for sale, especially Porsches. It's, uh, old cars are kind of an acquired taste. And if, if you're in your 20s or 30s and didn't go up with these old cars, they seem pretty clunky the first time you get into them. What, is, what have you seen uh, cooling off in the market that's been a big surprise to you? Well, I, I think... Uh, you know, 230, 250, 280 SLs have kind of peaked and come back down. Um, 
I I think you know, air cooled Porsche nine elevens are starting to settle down a little bit because they were so crazy for so long. I don't know that I'd say surprise because whenever anything goes crazy, you just step back and wait and it will eventually come down. You you get people caught up in what I call the flavor of the month phenomena where they see a three fifty six twin grill that sells for two hundred and they have to buy one and they pay two and a quarter and the next guy pays two thirty five and the next guy pays two forty five. Then suddenly somebody says, You know, maybe they're only worth a buck and a half. In my thirty years of doing this, I've seen a lot of uh you know, I've seen Ferrari boxers go from Two hundred fifty thousand dollars to eighty thousand uh, dollars. I, so I, I'm not really surprised when things cool off, and I, I'm not amazed when they jump. I just step back and say, well, there's the exuberance of the market. What trends do you think? Uh, what do you think is going to be the next hot thing? What do you think is going to be the next thing that you'd want to grab and hang on to? Well, that's that's sort of a. a the best question for me because I would never tell somebody to grab a car and hang on to it because they think it'll be worth more. Mm-hmm. The only reason I think you should buy a car is because you want to drive it and enjoy it. And if you think about it, when you buy a car and you store it for 10 years, think what you're paying in insurance and in storage. Exactly. Every little branch is going to devalue the car. You're afraid to drive it. I, I, just, I just would never encourage anybody to buy a car because they think it's going to be worth more money down the road. So, given that, what are the best drives that are affordable right now? Well, there's, you know, that's, that's another interesting question because there are so many incredible cars for not much money. I mean, think of a Porsche Boxster. They made hundreds of thousands of them, and you can buy a 10-year-old Boxster for ten grand. What an amazing car that is for almost no money. Uh, so I, I, same thing with some BMW 3 Series and 5 Series. I think we're looking at the best cars that have ever been built that are available right now, and for not much money, and they're safe, and they're fast, and they're comfortable. Now, they're not classic sports cars, but you can have a heck of a lot of fun and not spend a lot of dollars. Given what we're seeing with uh, the car market as it is now, the... Uh, the push for uh, manufacturers to build more electric cars and to build more hybrids and uh, and seeing things go in a, in a direction that we haven't seen before. Do you have any kind of predictions about what's going to happen with the collector car market? Well, it, it, it's hard to say what the 50-year picture would be. But over the next 10 years, it's not going to change much because there's so many collector cars out there and so many people who love them. The whole thing with autonomous driving, electric cars, that's the new car market. That's not the classic car market. Uh, the classic cars will continue to have, a, they've got a very large installed base of enthusiasts, and there'll be people who want to drive them and want to enjoy them. They want to join clubs. They want to talk to other people who have a shared common interest. So I, I don't think we're going to see much difference in the electric car market over the next decade. Yeah, and even keeping that in mind, I mean, maybe the future looks more like everybody has an electric car at home, and maybe they have a fun car in the garage that's going to be something like a classic car or something that's maybe considered yeah, a little bit more like okay. You know, you can have a pre, you can have a Prius and a Porsche. Sure, absolutely. Uh, will you ever own an electric car? Pardon me. Will you ever own an electric car? Uh, I haven't. I've driven a Tesla Roadster. Uh, which I, I wasn't very interested in because it was, although it was incredibly fast, it was really heavy. And I've got a, a Lotus Elise, and I value it because of its lightness. 
I'm not a big fan of blinding acceleration because once you get to the speed limit, what are you going to do? Well, it's all about the noise and the way it makes you feel, too, which is kind of something that electric cars are devoid yeah, of. Yeah, I mean, I, I can, I, if electric cars uh, um, become prevalent and have a good 300-mile range and you can buy one for $20,000, $25,000, then I would definitely have one as my around-town car, one with lots of airbags and a uh, place I can plug it in at night, because there's no joy in driving the city traffic. Absolutely. If I'm going to go to Seattle from Portland, 180 miles, there's no joy in driving 180 miles on Interstate 5 with 6,000-pound SUVs going by 80 miles an hour. True. So I I would be in an autonomous car or in an electric car in a heartbeat. I, I want to save my time with my classic cars where I can get them out on the open road and really enjoy them for what they were built to do. And that should really be the reason why people buy collector cars. I mean, whenever I see for sale ads for four GTs with three to five miles on them, I think the the auction description should should read instead of you know four miles from new, it should say never enjoyed by anyone at all. You know, <laughs> now, you wouldn't think that'd be a selling point, but it's just amazing that that so many people buy cars as collectible objects and don't want to actually enjoy them. Well, it's also if you pay a premium for a car with no miles, now you're afraid to drive it because look sure. how much you paid because it has no miles on it. Well, and we saw something like that recently uh, with the auction of a, was it a, it was an eight mile? Yeah. Grand National GNX GNX, that went for $200,000 on Bring a Trailer. And uh, what are your thoughts on something like that? Well, again, it's not my cup of tea. Uh, First of all, the, the GNX is not a car that appeals to me very much because it's not a sports car. It's not a car you would take on a thousand mile drive on curvy roads. No. It's, it's again. It's. it's uh, I've owned muscle cars. I owned a, a, a Superbird and a three eighty three Roadrunner, and uh, we've had a Viper Food. My heart's not really there. So you've got two things going there. I, it's a car I'm not particularly interested in personally. But secondly, eight miles. Now what are you going to do? You drive it around the block and you put ten miles on it. You, you know you, you, how much the <laughs> value have you taken down and you're around the block? True. Yeah, you know, the other thing we were talking about on, on one of our previous podcasts is just that, you know, the eight miles is touted as a selling point, but mechanically the car is probably in need of more service than any, oh, you know, ha- mid, mid-level mid mileage or high mileage car out there. You'd have to replace every fluid, every filter, all the gaskets, everything. It just, you know, uh, they aren't meant to sit. Yeah, that's right. And at the end but of the day, you know. That person who buys that car may not ever drive it anyway. Sure. Absolutely. Um, being that you do love to drive your cars, and that's one of the things I really admire about you, and you've gotten to drive all over the world, what is your favorite drive anywhere? Where, where is your favorite road? Well, it's, uh, it's on Mount Hood. That's an easy road for me, an easy question to answer. It's on the way to Mount Hood. You take a back road, and you get to Sandy, Oregon, and you get onto what's called Marmot Road. And you take Marmot Road up to Lolo Pass Road. I've been driving that since I was 18 years old in a variety of cars. Uh, and it's just the right set of 30 to 45 mile an hour curbs and little straightaways and forest and open field. It takes about 20 minutes to drive it, and, and I just love it. You got me smiling just thinking about it. Do you have a favorite car that you like to take down, Marmot? Uh, you know, any four-cylinder Alpha that I've got, they're all, they've all got suspension kits, uh, and they handle beautifully. They have, uh, I find, again, I've been an Alpha guy since I was 17. Uh, they just work for me in terms of just enough motor to get you going fast enough. Keith, 
we appreciate your insight. We love that you're here. We love that you're on the mend. Is there anything that you'd uh, you'd like to tell us before we have to go? No, I just think uh, I think that we have to realize that we're very lucky. We've lived through what I call the golden age of the auto, of the internal combustion engine. Right now, you can take any just about any car and title it and drive it on the road. I mean, I I think that you need to appreciate uh, that around the world, because of, of uh, ecological concerns, that you really can't drive old cars uh, in the heart of Paris anymore. So I think you need to appreciate the fact that we have this freedom to go out and get in our 1974 MGB and just drive on down the highway and not have to answer to anybody. Keith, thank you so much for being with us here on Driven Radio. Uh, we look forward to your, conf- your continued progress and sure hope to see you in Monterey this year. Thank you, Brett. I look forward to seeing you, too. Keith's blog can be found at www.sportscarmarket.com. He can be found on sp- on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash sportscar, Twitter at Keith Martin SCM, and on Instagram at Keith Martin SCM. Of course, you can find all those links on www.readthedriven.com. Coming up next, we've got this week's Exit Lane Live. Welcome back to Driven Radio and Exit Lane Live. You know, normally, Vern, we take this time, we talk about car shows and events and things that are coming up, but... Why would we do that when we could talk about Shelby Mustangs, though? Is that what you were about to say? Well, what I was going to say is you got a story I've been dying to hear about one of the Shelby drag cars you found, and I'd rather do that. Okay, well... You know, at the end of the last podcast that that I was featured on before I was a host of this show, uh, we talked about a 1965 Shelby GT350 drag car that was one of four ever produced and one of the three that exists that uh, I had made a trek of uh, three total treks to Hawaii to uh, to purchase the car. Yeah, well, if you got to go someplace to find a car, you could ask for a lot worse. Yeah, well, that's true. So uh, made three treks to Hawaii to purchase the car, but we kind of left the audience on a little bit of a cliffhanger as far as other stories and uh, a second drag car that was bought. So I, I guess it was uh, it's kind of the time now to talk about the first drag car. I ever well, bef- before you jump into it, tell me why it is a Shelby drag car is such a big deal. Uh, Shelby drag cars are to me a big deal. They they intrigue me because nobody, even diehard Shelby people, tend to know of their existence. Okay. Like, you know, there's plenty of Shelby people that do know about them. They're documented in the registry, but they get almost no attention. So they built, uh, they built four times as many R models in 1965 as they built of what they called a drag unit GT350 in 1965 and 1966. These were cars that, you know, the GT350 was, was originally built to beat the Corvettes and B production SCCA racing. So it was a road racing car. Um, it was not a drag car. It was never intended to be a drag car, yet there was a contingent of guys in Shelby American, mainly running the Dragon Snake Cobras, who liked to drag race and wanted to drag race, chief among them being Don McCain. Okay, well, how many of them were built in 65? There were four in 1965. Of those, only three currently exist in the world. What happened to the fourth? Um, the fourth one was allegedly lost in a street race to a Southern California firefighter, and it was never seen again. 
That's the story. Okay. That I've been told. But nobody's seen that car and I'm- supposedly that car was lost in the late sixties, mid to late sixties, and, and no I've heard from certain people in the Southern California contingent of the Shelby Club that that car may still exist somewhere. But I But no one's seen it since the mid sixties. Nobody's seen it since then. Okay. How many sixty six cars? Sixty six they did the same thing. They built four uh drag cars and of those, again, only three exist because the fourth one, uh almost from a scene out of a movie. Uh, there was a trail of gasoline leading to the car, gets ignited, car explodes, just like you would see in any mob movie. You're kidding. And the car was dumped in a landfill, and it's all documented. That car no longer exists. So, so there's three left from each year. Yeah. Six and, total cars. And that's why I was intrigued by the cars, is because hardly anybody in the Shelby world acknowledges their existence, even though they were really fast cars. They had fully built motors, fully built transmissions. They had full interiors with glass, but they were running mid to upper 12s in the quarter which was really um, quick at the time basically arm yeah very quick basically our model engines headers the 65s um ran 456 gear ratios they stepped it down to uh to what was it 386s and 66 i believe i could be wrong on that of course i'm on the spot now yeah see. um yeah i'm just going too fast at this point or no, no, no. See, that's that's why that didn't sound familiar. In '65, they were 514s. In '66, they were 486s. 514s would be almost 514s. Yeah, well, completely unstreetable. And that's why it was weird that the Hawaii car, which was a '65 drag unit, had 45,000 miles on it, which people would think is low mileage for any collector car. But for uh, a car that still had 514s in the rear, that was the highest mileage drag car in the world by that's, far. That's unbelievable. Yeah. So basically, I took an interest in those cars, uh, and I started just kind of researching them and calling around the people that owned them and trying to understand what they were. And, and through doing that. Uh, I found a, a gentleman in Southern California in Fontana who had bought uh, in the early 80s, I believe 1982, he purchased one of the 66 drag units. And he bought it from a San Diego uh, exotic car dealer in the early 80s of all places. Um, as a 66 Shelby, they sold it to him as a drag car, but it's uncertain whether or not that dealer even knew that it was actually an official factory drag unit. He bought it, he drove it 200 miles, and then he put it in his garage and never used it again. Did he know what it was when he bought it? I don't know. When I had asked him about it, it seemed like he knew that it was set up for drag racing, but I don't think he was aware that Shelby actually built a factory drag unit back then. It was, back when he bought it, the early 80s, I think the, the, the SAC Club had the records at that point, so I'm fairly certain they knew about the drag units, but it just wasn't really common knowledge that those cars were ever really built. Okay, so he bought it and he tucked it away in the mid-80s. Then, yeah. then what? Nothing for a very, very, very long time. The car sat in a, in a, in a garage. The, the thing that I personally find a little bit annoying about the current collector car, uh, the current collector car climate is that you, you see a lot of stuff for sale ads online, eBay, Craigslist, even more notable for sale sources where it's, it's very clear that people are trying to kind of play off the barn find motif. Yes. So we're dressing cars up with dirt. And they're throwing, they're throwing, you see in some of these pictures, they, they stack boxes on top of the cars where it's clearly, you can see the tape on the Amazon box and that box was just put on the car. It's like Christmas time and it's got the new Amazon Christmas tape on it. And you can tell that they're all fake photos in this car. I've never even really published the photographs, but this car was in this guy's two car garage next to a GMC Cyclone with a jack underneath it and literally covered with carpet and boxes and not really that dirty, but like certainly not clean. And it just sat there from 1982 till when I finally went to go see the car. It was, uh, I believe, 2015. I had been talking to the owner for a couple of years and the car was never going to be for sale. How'd you track it down? I just found his phone number and called him. 
No, 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 no. I mean, how did you find who the guy was? He was listed in the, in the Shelby American uh, Automobile Registry. He was, he was, he was, it was public, uh, public knowledge. And I actually had a friend here locally who had seen the car in person. So it wasn't unknown that he owned the car, but I guess when I went to go see him, the buddy of mine who had seen the car before was talking about how a friend of his really wanted to buy it. It was going to be like the centerpiece of his collection. Uh, so I figured the car wasn't really for sale because, or at least that the, the owner was truly reluctant to sell it because the guy who went to see it was a fairly important Shelby collector. And when I went to go see the car and I asked the guy if he'd sell it, he said, yes. And we quickly negotiated a price. And on the way back from the bank where we transferred him the money, uh, we were just we were just having a conversation in the car. And I said, so, mentioned my buddy's name. And I said, so, you know, when they came to see the car, didn't they want to buy it? And he said, well, I don't know. They never asked. Really? And I, and I said, really? And he said, yeah. I mean, I would have sold it to him in a heartbeat, but they never proposed to buy it. And they never gave me an offer. So I figured they weren't interested and they left. So that just goes to show you that if you actually, I mean, it seems obvious, but if you want to buy something, you don't just go see it and, you know, without at least offering to buy the car or asking so the, if it's for sale or throwing, throwing a price out there. So the car, sits, something. the car sits for almost 35 years Yeah, and you get it. And is it in fairly decent shape? Did you have to do a lot of work Amazing to it? Amazing condition. Really? All original sheet metal. Uh, not the original engine, but the original heads, which on a drag car, uh, the heads are arguably more important than the block because they're less Richie modified heads. Okay. Um, I got that car home and that's why that, that story aside from them both being drag cars sort of intersect because that was around the time that I got a call from the Hawaii owner saying that he was ready to sell the car. And of course I can't own two at one time. Oh my Lord. So I immediately sold the 66 to be able to go buy the 65. No kidding. So yeah. So in the, in a span of two months, uh, but of course when I, when I went to go get the 65 the first time I, uh, I was told that the car was, was not for sale and that I couldn't own it. And so I wouldn't imagine sitting uh, in Honolulu a gorgeous place and uh you should be relaxed and having a great time and all i can think about is how i sold the only 66 shelby drag car <laughs> i'm ever gonna own ever because the other two are owned by the kind of people that do not need to sell and will never sell no kidding to buy a 65 that i now cannot buy how fast did the 66 sell once you put it up uh it was never advertised it was sold to a friend of mine in uh, probably 48 hours i called him that night he showed up the next day with a with a super duty and a trailer wow so, you know, it's opportunities that you don't, as a collector, these are things that you, uh, you don't, you don't wait on if you have the opportunity to buy it. And that's the other story I've been waiting to hear from you for a long time. Yeah. And so I, I later, it, the, the interesting thing about that car is that that buddy that bought it from me, two years later, I brokered the car for him to a, a very well-known Shelby collector who now owns both cars. <laughs> Thank you so much for spending time with Driven Radio. We love what we do and we wouldn't be able to do it without the support of our audience. You can find us online at readthedriven.com, follow us on Facebook at forward slash Driven Radio Show, on Twitter at Driven Radio Show, on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and everywhere fine podcasts are heard. I'm Brett Hatfield for Vernestus. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on Driven Radio.